Welcome to Anchor Point, where we believe that the next 30 minutes could change your life forever. So join us to consider the greatest message ever heard, the good news of the gospel, as well as sound scriptural teaching for believers, all based on the Word of God, the anchor for our souls. Well, today we will be considering a Bible truth that you probably haven't heard much about, even though it was strongly believed and faithfully taught by the early Christian church. The rapture. No, it isn't a word that you'll find in the Bible, but the truth of it is there. The Lord Jesus Christ, before he went back to heaven, promised his followers that he would return again. He didn't say when, but he did say how. The Apostle Paul explains how that Christ will return from heaven, and all those who have believed on him down through the ages, both living and dead, will rise to meet him in the air to be forever with him in his heavenly home. The Bible calls it the blessed hope. You see, it's a wonderful prospect for believers, but a tragic one for those who have chosen to reject Christ. They will be left behind to face the great tribulation here on earth and the final judgment of God in a future day. In today's broadcast, Speaker Eugene Higgins discusses this great subject and begins with a few important readings from the Word of God. Since we use the Bible as our only text here on Anchor Point, all of Mr. Higgins' readings are included as he opens today's message. Tonight's subject is to look at what is often called the rapture, the coming again of the Lord Jesus for his people. I would like to look at it in such a way that if you have never heard of the subject before, or never taken the opportunity to read about it in the Bible, that God would help me to just speak about it in such a simple way, the Bible's teaching about the return of the Lord Jesus, because that is the next event that is scheduled on God's calendar, the coming again of the Lord Jesus. So will you turn, please, first of all, to the Gospel of John, and we'll read in chapter 14 and verse 1. There are three passages we'll want to read together. The Lord Jesus is the speaker. And he says, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Now notice that the Lord Jesus does not say that where you are, there I may be also. That would be earth. But what he is saying is that where I am, heaven, there you may be. He's not saying I'm coming back to be with you where you are, but I'm coming back to get you so that you can be where I am. Notice verse 4, whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? And because he asked that question, we are allowed this marvelously simple, one of those, those, those glorious gospel verses that dot the pages of our Bible. Verse 6 of John 14, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man, no one, cometh unto the Father but by me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one cometh unto the Father but by me. Now we'll read in First Thessalonians, Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. Paul is going to explain to us how the Lord Jesus will do this, what will happen when he comes back, and how he will have his people with him. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, and that is the, the Bible's term for believers who have died, them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or shall not go before them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another, encourage one another with these words. Now, final reading in the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to apply these words to the event we're looking at tonight, Luke chapter 13 and verse 23. Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. When once the master of the house is risen up and hath shut to the door, and ye begin to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence ye are. Then shall ye begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence ye are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out. And they shall come from the east and from the west, and from the north and from the south, and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. And behold, there are last which shall be first, and there are first which shall be last. I think that tonight's subject, even before we look at it, at least I can say this, it answers an oft-asked question. People will sometimes say, why doesn't God do something? Look at the world. Look at how things are. Look at the injustice. Look at the, the wickedness that happens in some places. Look at the inhumane activities going on. Think of wars. Think of illnesses and diseases and, and natural disasters. Why doesn't God step in? Why doesn't he do something? Well, what we are looking at tonight is exactly the beginning, if you'll let me put it this way, of the recovery of planet Earth. God has a program. He is going to recover this world. There is a golden age for our planet. It is going to come when the Lord Jesus returns to reign over this world. And what a world it's going to be when the Lord Jesus is finally given his rightful place. This is the first step in that great program. He's sending the Lord Jesus back to remove his people from the earth so that they can be with him when he comes back to set up that glorious kingdom. And of course, I think that tonight's subject reminds us of something very searching and very sobering. And that is that when it comes to the subject of salvation, when it comes to entering that door to be saved, tonight's subject reminds us that you are working on a time limit, that this is not an, an unlimited offer that can be allowed to perhaps be put off until you are on a deathbed, and then the religious advisor is summoned, the preacher or the priest or the pastor or the rabbi, and then perhaps then some words can be said or some ritual gone through that will prepare me. The Lord Jesus reminds us how important it is to be saved, to be inside that door, when he says to the questioner of Luke 13, strive to enter in. You make sure that you get in. Let no one stand in your way. Strive to enter in at the narrow door. 
So I hope that just those two things will not leave our thinking tonight, that what we're looking at is God's program to rescue this planet, but that for you personally, the most important issue that faces every human being is for you to be sure of your future, for you, in Bible words, Bible language, for you to be saved. Now, I think if we're going to understand the subject, then here are the topics that we need to think about tonight. We need to, first of all, look at the event. What do we mean? What does the Bible mean when it speaks about this event that we call the rapture? And the reason for it, why will this take place? And the timing of it, when will it happen? And the results on our world, what will happen when the Lord comes back? And then the response from each of us, what that response ought to be. The rapture, actually the very word, comes from the Latin word rapturo, to snatch away. And it is based on, of course, where we read in 1 Thessalonians 4, where Paul said, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up, shall be raptured, shall be snatched away. If you've ever heard someone say, I was listening to Bach, I was listening to, uh, to Beethoven, and I was just raptured. The idea is, of course, they were, they were elevated out of their bodies almost is the idea. Well, this is the catching up, the snatching away from this earth of everyone who is saved. Now, you might say, just a minute, mister. Are you saying that one day, all over the world, millions if not billions of people who have been born again, who are saved, are suddenly going to disappear? Are you asking me to believe that? Well, I'm not asking you to believe it. I do want to tell you that that is what God says. And in fact, had you been in a synagogue thousands of years ago, and you had heard a man get up and unroll the scroll of the book of Isaiah, and you had listened to him read words like this, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a child, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. And you were sitting there thinking to yourself, that's impossible. First of all, how can a virgin give birth to a child? And how can a mere human being be God, Emmanuel, God with us? And yet, that amazing, that remarkable prophecy was fulfilled literally and to the letter. Angels announced to Bethlehem shepherds, unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And by means of the virgin birth and incarnation, God entered our race. God entered our world. So as stunning as the truth is that I'm telling you tonight, the God who is going to do this has done exactly this in the past. In fact, he's given us precedence to understand what's going to happen. For instance, years ago, centuries ago, a man named Enoch in the book of Genesis, you can read about him. It says that Enoch walked with God. I'm not sure that I understand all that is meant by that, but part of it must be that Enoch shared God's thoughts about his society. He lived in a very violent and immoral society. And Enoch and God had similar thoughts about their world. And Enoch enjoyed times of fellowship with God. And someone has said it so poetically, it's as though one day God said to Enoch, you know what, Enoch, it's late. We're closer to my house than we are to yours. Why don't you come home with me tonight? And it says that Enoch was translated that he should not see death. So there's a man on earth, Enoch, and God brings him to heaven without his dying. Now, nobody saw that take place. And in fact, there's implications in the book of Hebrews that they searched for him, but they couldn't find him because he was in another sphere altogether. He had left this physical world, the earth, and he was now with God in heaven. And he had reached that without dying. Centuries after that, two men were walking together. They came to a river. The older man took off his cloak and he, he hit the river with it and the waters parted. And the two of them walked across and they come up on the other side and suddenly there is a whirlwind and heaven opens and this whirlwind snatches up the older of these two men, Elijah, and whisks him up into the skies. And as Elijah cranes his neck watching his teacher going, the old man's cloak fluttering down to the ground into his hands, 
Elijah was taken up by God. They searched for him, but they couldn't find him because he was gone. God had taken him. So you have nobody witnessing Enoch's translation. And they searched for him and they couldn't find him. You have one man witnessing Elijah's departure. And they searched for him and they couldn't find him. There were at least 11. And it may be that there were many, many more than that in the event I'm telling you about. But I know there were 11. And they're following one man. And he leads them out to a, a rise, a hill, on the east side of the city of Jerusalem. And if I understand the words, he began to move away from them. And he, he lifted his hands and that age-old emblem of Jewish benediction. He's blessing them. And as he's blessing them, he begins to leave the earth. He's heading back home. And they watch him rise from their midst, hands still upraised. The last glimpse they get of the Lord Jesus is of those wounded hands outstretched like this in blessing. And they watch him go, and they watch him as far as they can until a cloud receives him, and he's gone from their sight. And then there's this figure standing beside them and says to them, you men of Galilee, why do you stand here gazing up into the heavens? This same Jesus, whom you have seen go into heaven, he will come in like manner as you have seen him go. Nobody saw Enoch. One man saw Elijah. A number of men saw the Lord Jesus returning to heaven. And if you just back up a minute, there may have been scores and scores of people, many of them enemies of the Lord Jesus, lining the area that I'm talking about, watching the Lord Jesus. He's crying. He brushes away the tears. He says, roll away the stone. Some men bend their shoulders to this huge stone that's sealing this cave sepulcher. And they roll the stone back. And in our English Bible, it's three words. The Lord Jesus flings three words into that cave. Lazarus, come forth. And the whip-like authority of those words, reach into the cave for Lazarus remains, reach into heaven, paradise for the man's soul, reuniting them. And out from the sepulcher came a man who had been dead for four days, dead and buried. And the people are watching him come out. Nobody saw Enoch translated. One person watched Elijah ascend. Numerous people watched the Lord Jesus return to heaven. And dozens, many of them so, so furious at what they saw that they tried to murder Lazarus as well as the Lord Jesus. Many saw the resurrection of a man who had been dead for four days. Now, what God is going to do in the event we're looking at tonight, he has already shown us he has the ability to do. See, I've thought of it like this. If you were driving home tonight, and you came to an intersection and there was a red light facing you, you would, of course, put the brakes on and stop. But if as you got to that intersection and you brought your car to a halt, if at that intersection you suddenly noticed that there was a car off to the side, bubble on the top or a strip of lights, and they're flashing and there's a man standing in the middle of the intersection, and perhaps he has a long flashlight, the end of which is orange, and he is holding his hand up to the traffic that has the green light and telling them, stop. And he points the flashlight at you and you have the red light, and he says to you, go, what do you do? I mean, normally you stop for a red light. Well, here's the man telling you we're going to do it different this time. They're going to stop, and you're going to go. What do you do? Well, of course, none of us likes to sit at red lights, so you would go, but you would also do it because you understand this man has the authority. This man enforces that law. For some reason, he is temporarily suspending that law, and this time we're going to do it this way. I will tell you what the normal laws are. They have been enforced. They have been set in motion by the omniscient creator. Gravity and centrifugal force, they tie us to this planet. Mortality and corruption, as a result of sin, we die. Our bodies corrupt and return to the dust. Those are the normal things. But when the Lord Jesus comes back for his people, he's going to temporarily suspend that. And he is going to resurrect those who have died, catch up those who have not died. And all the saved are going to meet the Lord in the air so that where he is, heaven, we may be also. 
That is what is meant by the rapture, and we have his promise, if I go away, I will come again. The greatest proof, the greatest proof that the Lord Jesus is coming back for his people is that he left them to go to heaven. If I go away, I will come again. So why? Why do this? Why not just simply allow everyone who's on the narrow way, when the last person is saved, who's going to be saved and dies, why not then send the Lord Jesus back, set up his kingdom? Why, why this rapture? Why this secret evacuation of everyone who was saved? Well, there are some very important reasons for that. One of them is this, that these events we're going to look at in the nights ahead are going to be tantamount to war on earth. The devil is going to use the planet earth, if you'll let me phrase it this way, he is going to use planet earth as the clearing ground for his age-long war against God. He is going to bring together the mightiest fighting force in the world in history in an attempt to checkmate God from putting the Lord Jesus on the throne. And when those days of war come, God is not going to allow his people to be here. The Lord Jesus is coming for his people. He calls those who are saved his bride, his body. That's how dear, how close saved people are to him. And he's going to see that they're not left here for these awful days to come. Another reason is this, that when the Lord Jesus comes back to set up his kingdom, he's not going to come secretly. And he is not going to come as the meek and lowly Jesus. Banish from your mind a, a toga-wearing, sandal-bearing, bearded figure, meekly coming and teaching. He's coming back as the mighty monarch of an eternal kingdom. He's coming back as king of kings and lord of lords. He's coming back in such a blaze of glory that the kings of the earth in that day will close their mouths, speechless before the revelation of such tremendous, supernal majesty. And when he comes back, he wants his people with him for that day. He wants his people by his side. So the rapture is the way he's bringing his people to heaven so that we can be with them when he comes back to earth in his glory. Now, when will that take place? There's three things that I can tell you about the timing of the rapture. Please allow me to put all three together before you come to any conclusion. The first is this. It is unknown. It is unknown. Nobody knows the exact date when the Lord Jesus is coming back. If somebody tells you that they do, if they knock on your door and they tell you that they took the number of people who went into Noah's ark and they divided that by how many cubits the ark was and then they multiplied that by how many days he was in the ark and then they took how much manna and they took that figure and that, if they tell you that, get them a glass of milk and some graham crackers and get them out of the sun and, and, and get them just calm down and send them on their way. Nobody knows. Can I repeat that? We have people on the radio in the United States who are barking that they found the date and they know when Christ is coming. Nobody knows. And there is a marvelous result of that. Do you realize that by hiding the date, the Lord Jesus turned this into the perennial hope of his people all down through the ages? For instance, look at John 14. Suppose the Lord Jesus had said to his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again in the year 2009 and receive you unto myself that where I am there you may be also. What encouragement would that have been to them? They would have said to themselves, well, we'll live and die. We'll live and die before this century is over, let alone the, the 2009. But you see, by not saying the date, every generation of Christians has lived with this bright hope in their hearts, this expectation, I may be alive when the Lord comes back. I may be part of the generation that's living when the Lord comes, he turned it into a, a perennial hope. For instance, from your study of history, you will remember when there would be a cluster of Christians standing in the middle of the Colosseum, 
Around them, there was an ocean, a sea of pagans shouting down at them in the words they used to mock them. Saved and washed, saved and washed. And over there, the lions are, are pawing at the gate, ravenous. And bad enough to die that way yourself, but imagine that your wife and children are by your side and you are helpless to defend them. And very soon those gates are going to rise up and those wild animals are going to come bounding out to tear your family apart and to destroy you. What were they saying to one another? They were buoying their spirits up with the reminder that the Lord is coming, that he might come before those gates open and that if those gates open and they die, it does not matter. The Lord is coming and this will all end one day and we'll be with them and so will our loved ones who are saved. And they would use the Aramaic phrase, Maran Atha, the Lord is coming. Nero, the Roman emperor, was such a wicked man that the Christians of that day thought that he had to be this man. They couldn't imagine anybody who could be more wicked, more vile, more ungodly than Nero. Nero had Christians crucified like the Lord Jesus, nailed them to crosses. He had the crosses placed at equidistant spots, strategic points around his courtyard. They brought in the tables. They brought in the food. They brought in the drinks, the wine. He brought in all of his courtiers and friends and the ladies, and they had a drunken festival, and they had an orgy there. Before he had those Christians crucified, he had them dipped in pitch. They're writhing in pain on these crosses, and the sun goes down. And Nero called for his servants, and they took torches, and they went from cross to cross, and they lit the pitch so that now those Christians dying from crucifixion, and people had been known to remain on a cross for two to three days, writhing in agony from crucifixion. Now they're burning alive. And under the lurid flame of their burning bodies, they continue down here. They continue their drunken festival. Do you know what they were calling to one another? The Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. This is not a permanent thing. We may die, but the Lord is coming, and we will be with him forever, and so will all who belong to his family, everyone who is saved. Only by hiding the date did the Lord Jesus make that possible. So the first thing is this. The coming of the Lord Jesus, as far as the time is concerned, it is unknown. But do not allow that Please, do not allow that to make you miss the second point, and that is this. His coming is absolutely certain, absolutely certain. He said in the Gospel of Matthew, his last words recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, that he would be with us to the end of the age. The age is going to end. He's coming again. His last words in the Gospel of John have to do with his coming again, till I come. His last words in the Bible before the book closes, Revelation chapter 22, he says, surely I come quickly. And John responds, amen, even so come Lord Jesus. So that before the Bible closes, he wants to remind us he is coming again. And when he comes, he will quickly come for his people. So although it is unknown, because Christians aren't on the planning committee, we're on the welcoming committee. We're waiting for him to come. We have no no handle on the planning of it, as somebody has said. We're just waiting for the moment when he comes. But his coming is absolutely certain. Yes, the exact time of the Lord's return is unknown. But as Mr. Higgins has emphasized, it is certain. So the question is this, are you ready? If the rapture takes place today, would you go to meet the Lord in the air and forever be with the Lord? Remember, Christ himself said to strive to enter in. That is, make it your number one priority in life to be sure that you are ready for that great day. Because you can be sure. You see, Christ has made his salvation readily available to you. Upon the cross of Calvary, he has paid the price for sin, death. 
All he wants you to do is to trust in him. If you have any questions about how you can be sure of your salvation, don't hesitate to contact us for literature on this subject or for a personal visit where the Word of God would be opened to show you God's way of salvation. If this or any of our Bible messages here at Anchor Point has made you aware of God's interest in you, or if you'd like some literature or a visit that would help you understand these important truths, why don't you drop us a line at anchorpointradio at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We're glad you were able to join us at Anchor Point today. Anchor Point is sponsored by Believers in Christ who are meeting at various gospel halls. Each of these Christian assemblies holds gospel services every Sunday, as well as other meetings such as regular prayer and Bible studies throughout the week. If you've been challenged by today's message and would like to know more about the truth of the gospel or of gathering unto the name of the Lord Jesus Christ following New Testament principles, take a look at our Anchor Point website at anchorpointradio.com. There you will find more information as well as the location, programs, and meeting schedules for the gathering center nearest you. My name is Glenn Todd. Thank you once again for listening, and we invite you to join us again next week at the same time for Anchor Point, where we believe that Christ alone is the anchor for the soul. 